I want to welcome our friend Rich Velodas to come share with us. Rich is the lead pastor at New Life Fellowship in uh, New York. And um, Rich is actually one of my favorite Twitter follows, um, mostly because if you don't know what you want to read next, Rich will tell you what you should be reading next. But he also, what I love is that he, along with me, is part of the Bowtie Mafia. Um, this is Bowtie or No Tie. But he's also an incisive thinker and um, a wonderful leader for his community and his church. They are doing marvelous things together. So would you help me welcome Rich Velotas? Good morning, everyone. Great to, uh, to be here. What a, what a gift it is uh, to be back here. My first time at Missio, the Awakenings Gathering was two, two years ago. And uh, my heart was stirred two years ago. And being here the last few days, my heart has been stirred as well. Because I think the Spirit of God is moving and active and, um, uh, and alive in our midst here. And so uh, I have the great task of um, just building a sense of continuity uh, to follow Karen's wonderful uh, talk this morning. Now, I have the great privilege of pastoring New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York City. Our church is 31 years old. I've been a pastor there for 11 years. I've been the lead pastor for the last six years, and it is a really beautiful congregation. We are in a space where National Geographic said we are, uh, have been in the most diverse zip code in the world. Where there's 123 languages spoken at the nearby hospital, 75 nations represented in our church. To take out $20 at the local Chase ATM, uh, it's about 20 options before you, and so it is dizzying, it is it's crazy. And, to be a pastor at a church with that level of diversity is wonderful, but it also means that whatever tensions exist in the world finds its way in our local church. And so whether that means uh, a tsunami that hits uh, uh, Indonesia, whether it's a catastrophe in the Philippines, whether there's some realities happening in another part of the world, we feel it very deeply in our community. And so in our church, we have Black Lives Matter uh, activists and we have Blue Lives Matter uh, congregants. We have folks who have voted for Donald Trump and we have folks who voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, whenever the World Cup comes around, there's a lot of drama in my church. Uh, <laughs> the Olympics come around, there's a spirit of the vision in my church. And so, um, what a mess. Uh, when South Korea beat Germany in the World Cup, they weren't praying with each other. The Koreans and the Germans weren't praying with each other. And so here we are. And so, and yet we get, a, a, I think, a glimpse of, of something of the kingdom of God in our midst in Queens. Uh, our claim to fame as a church, I like to believe, is we are two blocks from where McDowell's was and coming to America. And so Eddie Murphy in Arsenio Hall, in the movie, you'll see our church in the background, and so uh, that is our claim to fame. All right, my morning assignment is to talk about character, to follow Karen's wonderful talk, and I want to talk out of Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, there's really a story of character that I believe is an urgent message to the church, an urgent message to, to my life, hopefully an urgent message uh, to you as well. How do we shape, how do we live with deep character formation. And so Matthew 20, hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 20. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons, 
of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus responds, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup? I am going to drink. We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from the cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places have uh, belonged to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Spirit of the living God, breathe on us. Open our ears so that we may hear what you want us to hear. Open our eyes so that we may see what you want us to see. Open our hearts that we would receive every gift of the Spirit this morning. We open ourselves to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Every now and then when I'm home and sit on the couch, I channel surf looking for a good movie to watch. And just like you, there are certain movies that whenever they come on, no matter what point in the movie it's at, I stop whatever I'm doing to watch. When Gladiator comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing to watch. When Shawshank Redemption comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing to watch. When Goodwill Hunting comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing to watch. But there's another movie where I stop what I'm doing, and that movie is Titanic. <laughs> whenever it comes on, I stop. Now, what I love about Titanic is it's really a story of contrast, a story of juxtaposition, where on the top of the boat, the upper decks of the ship, there is opulence, there's abundance, there's wealth, there's festivity, there's celebration. But a few days out to sea, the Titanic hits an iceberg. And what we see is a terrifying contrast. We're on the upper decks, everything looks wonderful, lots of joy, lots of celebration. But on the lower decks of the ship, there is chaos. All kinds of chaos. There is ensuing death right before. And what begins to happen is the the stuff on the lower decks begin to rise to impact the stuff on the upper decks. So much so that at the end of the movie, and I don't want to spoil it, at the end of the movie, <laughs> Titanic, some things you should know by now. Uh, by the way, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time in The Sixth Sense. While we're, at, while we're talking about it, he was dead the whole time. <laughs> Amen. You had 20 years. What happens is the stuff on the lower deck impacts the stuff on the upper deck until it capsizes. And I want to tell you this morning that I believe that the church has hit an iceberg, that we are in trouble. 
that no strategy is going to rescue us. No new tips and techniques is going to save us. What we need is a reimagination of character. And our refusal to address our character is akin to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. The stories and statistics before us are troubling. 700 victims of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church. The stunning abuse of power and sexual sin at megachurches in Chicago. Catholic priests raping nuns and the ongoing abuse of children. Financial mishandling. Cultures of abuse and intimidation. And before we get to the point where we shake our heads in a kind of distanced dismay and with a sense of judgment, I'm reminded of what Bernard of Clairvaux said in the 12th century to one of his monk disciples, Eugene III, who had become the Pope. And in his work of becoming Pope, Eugene III was failing at cultivating a life with God. And Bernard says these words to him, and I paraphrase, if you're not concerned that your heart might become hard, it already is. And that's God's word to all of us. If you're not concerned that your heart might become hard, it already is. The stories and statistics before us are depressing, sobering. The character of the church is perpetually questioned. The witness of the church is consistently maligned. The power of the church is pervasively compromised. Why? In a word, character. We all in this room have been entrusted with great power. And whether we are shepherding congregations of 50 or 500 or 5,000, whether we are entrusted with students under us, under our care, we have been entrusted with great power. And too often our character is not proportionate with the power that we've been entrusted with. What often happens is we are so enamored with gifts, or to use a framework of alliteration that we often use, especially in kind of hiring context, we are so enamored with chemistry and with capacity and with competence and with charisma. But what we often fail to investigate is character. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 13, what's often called the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 was not written with the wedding ceremony in mind. 1 Corinthians wasn't, 13 wasn't written with, to give us warm, fuzzy feelings. 1 Corinthians 13 is, is Paul's words of rebuke to a church that's marked by great miracles and charisma but by little maturity and character. And so he writes this letter because he's hearing crazy stuff. Stuff with mothers sleeping with their stepson. Stuff of cliques forming. I'm of one, I'm of the other. And Paul cannot believe what he is seeing in short, character. Now, when I talk about character, I'm not simply talking about abstaining the bad, from the bad things. I'm talking about giving ourselves to the good things. Not simply abstaining, but how do we give ourselves to that which God is inviting us into? And our character is to be cruciformed in nature. It was Brendan Manning who said that the cross is not just a symbol of our salvation, it's the pattern for our lives. And we are to live a cruciform kind of way of being in the world. And this is where I pick up in Matthew chapter 20. 
In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is approached by a mother, a well-meaning mother, a helicopter mother, an over-functioning mother, and she approaches Jesus because she believes that he is headed for greatness. She believes that he is headed for authority. She believes he is headed for the throne. All these things are right. And Jesus, sensing that she has a request, says, the million dollar question, what is it you want? And she immediately responds, when you come into your kingdom, can my two boys sit on either side? One on your right, the other on your left. And Jesus hear these hears these words, and he says these words to her, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he follows up with this question, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And without hesitation, without reflection, without contemplation, without diligence, they say, yes, we can. Can you drink it? Yes, we can. No reflection, no contemplation, no thought about it. Now, I imagine that they thought Jesus must have in mind some kind of strong, distasteful drink that they have to swallow before they receive their promotion, but Jesus wasn't talking about a literal drink. He wasn't talking about some kind of liquid concoction. He was talking about a suffering, self-giving life. And he's saying essentially this, saying can you drink the cup is can you take in, can you swallow, can you carry, can you open yourself up to the pain, the suffering, the rejection, the death required for this role, and they said yes, we can. Now either they understood the question fully and courageously affirmed the call, or they were blinded by their appeal for the position. I believe it's the latter rather than the former. And so Jesus then, he says, those things are for my father to determine, but you're going to drink the cup if you're going to follow me. And then he says, to drink the cup essentially is to take the path of lowliness. To drink the cup, I drink. And so he says, you don't know what you're asking for. And I think that's a message I need to hear on a regular basis. I don't know what I'm asking for. I think it's a message that we all need to hold on to. I, we don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink what I drink? Now I want to offer before you five cups. Five cups to live a life of cruciform character. Cups that we are to drink deeply from. Cups that Jesus has received and embodied and taken in himself. Five cups of cruciform character formation. The first cup is in the form of a question. Can you drink the cup of self-examination? Can you drink the cup of self-examination? When you look at this text, there is no self-examination at all. There is no time to assess their motives. There is no time to give thought to their ways. The problem is they have not fully taken the time to see what Jesus is speaking of. They simply say yes without any form of self-examination. And yet to follow Jesus in the way of character formation 
means that we must live an ongoing, perpetual, Ignatian way of examination, where our lives are consistently before the Father, examining our conscience, examining our lives, examining the ways that we are inconsistent with following in the way of this kingdom, examination, introspection, the act of confronting ourselves. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus in Luke 4 he says these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What's often disconnected from that is Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness in examination. And as he's in the wilderness, Satan comes. And as he's in the wilderness, the evil one says, listen, I, I, you, can, you, if you turn this, 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 this stone into bread, can you do that? What Henry Nouwen says, can, can you be relevant? He's, he says, how about you jump from the, the top and, and angels will, will, will catch you. Well, what also now and says, the temptation to be spectacular. He says, why, why don't you bow at me here and I'll give you the kingdom of the world. What now and says, the temptation to be powerful, to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful. And Jesus says, no, no, it is written, it is written, it is written. And it is after this place of self-examination that he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me. How can we truly be anointed by the Spirit when we refuse to confront our own demons? Self-examination. To clearly name the idols of success, of notoriety, of effectiveness that often fill our hearts. I'm reminded of what Thomas Merton says. Thomas Merton, in one of his books, said, if I had one message to my contemporaries, it surely is this, be anything you like, be madmen, drunks, and bastards of every kind and form, but at all costs, avoid one thing, success. If you are too obsessed with success, you will forget to live. You, if you have learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. Self examination when's the last time you've given thoughtful reflection to your ways how often do you give thoughtful reflection to your ways to asking the spirit of the living God to sift our motives why do we do what we do examination the second cup is can you drink the cup of cruciform listening cruciform listening this story is a reframing of power, a reframing of mission, a reframing of significance. And Jesus says, we are to take the role of servants. And one of the ways that we serve, brothers and sisters, is by listening. But those who have power are often some of the worst listeners. And one of the biggest tasks we have is to do the work of listening. Why? Because it's cruciformed. It's hard. It's hard to listen. This is why at our church, we, we, we teach something called incarnational listening, in which modeled after the life of Jesus, we are called into three stages to leave our world, to enter into the world of someone else, and to allow that world to shape our very existence in ways that it hasn't been shaped before. But it is so hard to listen. And yet those who have power are called to listen first 
and foremost. This is character formation in a nutshell. We're all not called to listen equally to each other. Those who have power are to listen first and more often. This is why in a world marked by patriarchy, why men need to listen to women first and more often. Say amen, somebody. Yeah, yeah. This is why those who are wealthy and upwardly mobile need to listen first and foremost to the poor and the immigrant and the working class person. This is why the church in North America needs to listen first and foremost to the church of the global south. This is why when we're talking about race, white folk need to listen to people of color first and more often because you've enjoyed the privileges of social power. And so we are called to the cruciform way of listening to offer presence to one another. In a word, listening is can you be truly present with empathy listening to another? Present. Now, I've experienced this in my marriage. Rosie and I, we've been married for 13 years. And I recall when we were going through premarital counseling and such, the person who was giving the class looked at everyone who was in love and, and, and holding hands and everything, and they said, it's gonna take you at least 10 years to learn how to be married, to start learning how to be married. I looked at my wife, I said, babe, we'll do it in two. Bam, we'll do it in two. <laughs> We're on year 13, and I'm still trying to figure this thing out. And one of the challenges that I experience in marriage is my often inability to be present, to listen. Whenever my wife is experiencing difficult emotions, we don't say negative emotions, we say difficult emotions like anger and sadness. Whenever she's experiencing difficult emotions, I go into four modes of being. The first mode I go into is uh, the computer, where I, I list out a couple of options for her. Babe, you can do this, you can do this. No, 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 don't be sad, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, this doesn't work. The second mode I go into is the mode of minimizing. Babe, is, is it that bad, honey? Is, 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 is it is that bad? This doesn't, ooh, this doesn't work either. The third mode I go into is superimposing mode. If, if that was me, this is how I, I would uh, respond to that situation. Uh, the, the fourth mode is, is get out of there mode. Just get the hell out of here, but I'm out of here. I'm just gonna leave. I'll be back. I'll be back. And so in this order, I go see a therapist. And therapy is part of my regular monthly spiritual formation. I want to grow in awareness to be a better pastor, a better husband, a better father, a better preacher. I see a therapist. And a therapist, I says, this is my problem. Whenever my wife is angry, I, I just go into these four modes of being. Whenever she's sad, I, I take it upon myself. I get defensive. I go all the sudden. He says, Rich, it's really a simple thing for you to do. I said, I'm I got my legal pad out. I, what, what you got for me? He says, one thing I want you to do. The next time your wife is sad, I want you, I said, I'm listening. I want you to be sad with her. I said, what else you got? Tell me, what, what else you got? What else? <laughs> he said, the next time your, your, your wife is angry, I want you to be angry with her. He said, you gotta get in touch with your own anger and your own sadness, but to be present, be angry with her. I said, what, what else? He said, that, he said that's it. 
He said, now, this doesn't work if she's angry with you. I just want to let you know that this doesn't work if she's angry with you. And so, um, or be angry. She's a consuming fire. There's nothing I can do at that point there. And so, and so the, the, the next week, she's angry about something. It wasn't even something big, but I thought, this is my moment to shine. <laughs> this is it. I start thinking about computer. I can't go into computer. I start thinking about minimizing. I can't minimize. I start thinking about superimposing. I better not superimpose. I better think about, I, sh I shouldn't stay here. Just stay here. The doctor said, be angry with her. And so she's angry. And it wasn't even about something significant. It wasn't even a really big thing. But I felt this is my moment to enter in. This is my moment to be incarnational. This is my moment to shine. And midway through, a, uh, through as she's talking on an issue that wasn't even that big in a disproportionate kind of a way, I just interrupt her and say, she said what? <laughs> How dare she talk to you like that? Who does she think she is? And my wife said, calm down, baby. No, 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 calm down. No, no, no. I don't want to calm down. She's giving me water. I don't want the water. And do you know what my wife felt at that moment? Love. 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 Look at your neighbor and say, you know that's right. You know that's right. You know that's right. Presence, being with, listening, it's the cruciform way of being, listening. Third cup, can you drink the cup of vulnerability? The cup of vulnerability. It was Richard Beck who said, due to many churches' explicit and implicit religious sanctioning of the American success ethos. Church members become too afraid to show each other their weakness, brokenness, failure, and vulnerability. Yet time and time again, the, the Jesus way is the cruciform way of vulnerability. When Thomas is having a hard time believing in John 20, and he's like, I won't even, I, I, I need to see it to believe it. Jesus comes in with his wounds, and I love that the resurrected one still has his wounds. And he says, Thomas, G Jesus, his disciples, he, he, Jesus shows his wounds and vulnerability to his disciples, and he opens himself to his disciples to the point where Thomas sees his vulnerable self and believes. I often wonder, one of the reasons why the world doesn't believe in our gospel is because it's one not marked by vulnerability, but by coercion. One not marked by weakness, but by power. Not by brokenness, but by idolatry. Can you drink the cup of vulnerability? Andy Crouch has said that the word vulnerable means at its root to be woundable. To expose, to be exposed to the possibility of loss. And not just the loss of things or possessions, but loss of our own sense of self. How close do you allow people to get to you? Who knows your story? Who knows your addictions? Who knows your sexual sin? Who knows the level of consumer debt you're in? Who knows the stress that you're carrying? Vulnerability. To whom do you open yourself up to? Who knows your story? Who knows your history? Who knows your abusive father? Who knows the ongoing tensions in your marriage? 
vulnerability. Opening ourselves up to others. Can you drink the cup? Are you creating a culture of vulnerability? Is your local church marked by vulnerability? Brokenness, woundedness, openness, which is true authority and true power. Vulnerability. Fourth cup along those lines is, can you drink the cup of being held accountable? I mentioned this in this order because it's possible to be vulnerable in a kind of performance-oriented way while still be trapped by our shadow sides. Along these lines, after much of the uh, news coming out of Chicago, Andy Crouch actually wrote an article in the Gospel Coalition, and I, I found his um, piece to be really instructive. And he said these words. He, he says, we will paradoxically need to expect less transparency from our public figures, less alluring displays of intimacy and so-called vulnerability, and more accountability from the systems around them. We will need to put more energy into building systems, including systems that account for the temptations of power that will last for generations. Now this is hard for me. I wanna do what I wanna do. I don't wanna be told what to do. I don't want my board to tell me how many times I can preach in a given year in a different location. I wanna do whatever I wanna do. And yet, I'm called to submit. Yet I'm called every month to give a report of my personal life, my marriage. My wife comes in and tells them while I'm not there how I'm doing. Do you let your spouse, him or her, is there a culture that you hear from the spouse of the pastor if married? An accountable system? Or are you hiding your spouse from the board? Less too much information comes out. Accountable systems. Who can tell you no? Who can hold your feet to the fire? Now, in most contexts, the pendulum has swung the other way where it is oppressive and coercive and manipulative. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, here's the word, moderation. Who can tell you no? Who can call out your stuff? I'm reminded, as, as a 21-year-old, I was in Nyack College, and I had a moment where a professor, um, Dr. Ron Walborn, who's here, one of my dearest friends, and in one of the class, it was one of the first moments as a Christian that someone was holding me accountable. And I was called to do a report on post-modernity as a 22-year-old. I read Len, uh, about three pages of Leonard Sweet's book, uh, and, and I said, um, great, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do my own presentation, uh, the hubris and, and all that there. And so I, I gave a 30-minute presentation on post-modernity, post-modernism, all that. And midway through the presentation, uh, Ron just interrupts me midway through the presentation. And he says, Rich, can I stop you for a second? I said, yeah, what's up? He, go, he goes, you haven't read the book, huh? And I said, uh, no. He says, keep going. Am I telling the truth, Ron? And I, kept, and I kept going. And afterwards, he said, Rich, see me after class. <laughs> and he told me, this, this young 22-year-old, he said, Rich, you have a gift and you have a curse. He said, the gift is you can read three pages and you can give a 30-minute presentation. The curse is 
you won't have the character to sustain that gift. And as a 22-year-old, I remember exactly where I was in Boone Center on the fourth floor by which door I was at where something just struck me that someone was holding me accountable and speaking what needed to be spoken in that moment. Can you drink the cup of being held accountable? Do you open yourself up to that or do you have to wait until crisis hits to be held accountable? That's the fourth cup. Last cup is this and I'll end with this. Can you drink the cup of humility? I love that there's a sense of continuity here and how Karen has started us along these, this road here. But to drink the, a cruciform cup of way of being requires us to live in humility. And humility requires us to confront our own sense of entitlement. Humility is an accurate assessment of ourselves. And who are we? Jesus says we are servants. There's no entitlement. When I got to New Life Fellowship Church 11 years ago, I was interviewing for the job, and, and, and I went on a Sunday to visit the church, and, and the, the search team said, Rich, we have a parking spot for you. There's not a lot of parking spots in Queens, and we have a little parking lot, and, and they said, there's a parking spot waiting for you. I said, fantastic. I, I pulled in. I went to the services. It was a fantastic time. And, and, then, and then I said yes to the position, and the first words that I got from the search team was, now that you have said yes, you can never park in the parking lot again on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? They said, elders and pastors cannot park on Sunday morning in the parking lot. You have to find the parking on the street. And in Queens, this is no easy feat. And walk. And I would see my predecessor, Pete Scazzaro, walking blocks to get to the church. And that's from that moment I said, humility requires, there's no sense of, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. And yet everything inside of me feels entitlement. And yet it's something, a cruciform way of being is the way of humility. Humility requires us to, to recognize our entitlement and in the power of the Spirit to resist it, to confess our limits regularly, to recognize that we don't see the full picture. What I love is there's this amazing juxtaposition. Right, right after John, uh, Matthew 20 here, in the next section, there's another story. In the first one, it's about a mom and her two sons. In the next one, it's about two other men, two blind men. Look at the flow of the story. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Verse 30, two men, blind men, were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked him. Verse 20, uh, 32, Jesus stopped and called them. The same question. What do you want me to do for you? The same question he asked the mother. And in this case, they said, we want to see. The two disciples wanted a seat. These two blind men wanted to see. They recognized, I don't see. The question of which one are we? Are we those who want the seat? Are we those who say, I don't see, I can't see? 
unless you open my eyes. And that requires humility. I can't see. You need to show me. I don't know the full picture. I don't know the full story. Humility. A recognition that I can't see. It's, humility is the recognition of who we are, the right assessment of who we are, which leads to having a right assessment of who God is. The God who holds all things together. Humility is a recognition that I am so dispensable that the world will go on just fine without me. My favorite words in the book of Joshua is, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now get up and go. It's like you would think God would be a little more kind to Moses <laughs> after all he had to put up with. But Moses is dead. In other words, this show is going on. That Moses, and, and so humility recognizes your church will be just fine without you. My church will be just fine without me. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it recognizes that this thing is not being held together by me. It's being held together by him. Colossians 1.17 has become my favorite passage. I'll end with this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I want to end with showing you a series of images. In Rockefeller Center in New York City, there's, there's an image of, uh, of Atlas, a statue of Atlas who is, who is holding the world on his shoulders. A picture of many of our lives, believing that we have to hold everything together. Everything revolves around me. I have to hold the thing. And so Atlas is straining under the weight of the world. But what's remarkable about this statue is there's this remarkable juxtaposition where Atlas is facing St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful juxtaposition. World on his shoulders, and he's facing St. Patrick's Cathedral. But there's another image. Don't go to it yet. There's another image I want to show it to you that in another room, Behind the altar, rather, in St. Patrick's Cathedral, there's another statue. Atlas is holding the world on his shoulders, but there's another statue. And in St. Patrick's Cathedral, it's, it's a statue of, of boy Jesus. Show that picture for me there. Effortlessly holding the world in his hands. Five-year-old Jesus. Kindergarten Jesus. Chicken nugget eating Jesus. <laughs> Juice box sipping Jesus. Disney Junior watching Jesus. Effortlessly holding the world in his hands. He is before all things. And in him, somebody say, in him, in him all things hold together. Amen.